Good morning. Let's go ahead and stand as we enter into worship together. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Let's just set our focus on the worthy one, Jesus, this morning as we sing, as we raise our hallelujah. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemy.
Every breath that I am 
You are so good. And we recognize and remember this morning just how good you have been in our lives, in my life, God. I remember the times where I maybe have had my own plan or the times in our lives where we've had circumstances that didn't go the way we wanted them to or expected, but your goodness prevails and it will continue to prevail because God, you are good and that is the truth and that is a promise that we can hold on to. So God, I pray over your church this morning that we would recognize and receive your goodness in a brand new way and that we would remember that whatever lies ahead, that you are good and you are faithful, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name, Father, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. My name is Adele, and I volunteer with Women's Ministry. Ladies, I'm here to invite you to two special events we have coming up this Saturday. First, we'll have a low-impact fitness class called Rev on the Mat. It's kind of like yoga, but with a Christian core and upbeat music. It's a lot of fun, and instructor Bree Joy brings wonderful energy to the class. It starts at 8.30 a.m. in the Community Center Gym. Immediately after the class at 9.30, Women's Ministry is hosting a coffee meetup and book swap. It's open to all women, whether you've gone to the fitness class or not. Enjoy light refreshments, hot coffee, and great conversation as we mix and mingle. If you can, please bring a book that you've enjoyed or a jigsaw puzzle to trade. The sign-up information for both of these events is available on Church Center. We'd love to see you there. The American Red Cross will be holding a blood drive tomorrow at our community center gym from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. If you can, please consider this opportunity to give to others by donating your blood. You can schedule a time to donate by going to either Church Center or directly to the Red Cross website. The high school students going to Life will be hosting a pie auction on Sunday, April 3rd, and they need your help. We know there are a lot of amazing bakers out there, so we're asking if you would make your one-of-a-kind gold medal pie for the auction. If baking just isn't your thing, but eating pie is, then just come and bid on your favorite pie that morning. You can find all the information about donating a pie on Church Center. Let's give Pastor Scott a challenge and see whose pie raises the most money this year. Can you believe that Easter is just a few weeks away? We have a full weekend of events planned that you won't want to miss. All of the special events and service times are listed out on our website, as well as on our Easter invite cards that are available for those of you joining us in person today. Be sure to grab a handful of cards on your way out and think about who you could invite to join you this Easter. We are so glad you've joined us today. If you are new and here in person, please be sure to stop by the information desk in the lobby. We'd love to meet you and give you a small gift. If you're joining us online for the first time, let us know in the chat box. We have a gift for you too. For more information about anything I've mentioned today and more happening in the life of our church, be sure to check out Church Center. Thanks for being here with us today.
Good morning, everyone. My name is Steve Schoenberg. I'm privileged to serve as a head elder here at Essex Alliance. We have some special services today. Our lead pastor, Scott Slocum, not long ago was given an honorary doctorate degree by Nyack College, where he serves as chairman of the Board of Trustees of Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary. Nyack College was founded in 1882 by A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the denomination to which Essex Alliance belongs. We have chosen as a church to honor Pastor Scott Slocum this Sunday. Due to COVID, the commencement ceremonies at Nyack College were canceled last spring, so we will include now the hooding ceremony near the end of this service. Our basis for choosing to honor Pastor Scott in this way is rooted in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders or spiritual leaders who lead well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at teaching and preaching. This honorary degree is based upon Pastor Scott's leadership and service to Nyack College and the CMA denomination. It is vitally connected to his 30 plus years of preaching, teaching, and leadership here in Vermont from which we have all benefited. So it is our privilege to honor him today consistent with the Apostle Paul's direction. The second service, uh, this one is live streamed, um, and so it'll be available also online uh, afterwards if anybody wishes to view it. After the service, there is a reception for Scott and Diane in the video cafe. To help make this event possible, we are honored to have from Nyack the president, Rajan Matthews, and his wife, Grace, uh, Dean Ron Walburn, uh, a trustee Dwight Safer, who many of you know here from Essex, uh, and trustee Tom Flanders, who will be giving our talk this morning. Tom is also the CMA Southeast District Superintendent in Florida, which is kind of hard to say. I don't know how you get along with that. And he will, uh, he will deliver the message. He's formerly of the Northeast District and a great friend of this church. So let's give to all a warm Vermont welcome. Well, good morning, everyone. That was pretty bad. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Much better. It's always helpful when the preacher has something coming back at him a little bit. Um, in the earlier service, I was able to share some remarks that I think were appropriate because the hooding will actually occur at the end of this service for the conferring of the honorary doctorate to Scott Slocum. Uh, but let me say this. What I said last night at the dinner and this morning, I think, is most appropriate. Uh, among all of the contributions that uh, Scott has made to the church, 
Um, most notably, even within the CNMA, really, is the last 30-plus years that he and Diane have been here to pastor the Essex Alliance Church. So I'm most grateful that over the last decade and more, I've been able to see that on full display. It's thrilling to see all of your faces here this morning. The church is an incarnational enterprise, and it's important for us to be together and that's sort of illustrated to us in the most important of ways that Jesus left heaven and came down here and took flesh because he wanted to be with people. And it's good for us to be able to be back together again. Wouldn't you agree? So. As Steve uh, said a moment ago, Chris and I now live in Florida. We uh, have met a lot of people there that didn't even know there was a pandemic. So um, it's really <laughs> nice to be back here in Vermont where uh, cooler heads have prevailed. So uh, anyway, it's a privilege for us to uh, be able to not only be here on this important occasion, but for me to be able to share with you from the word of God. As the worship team was singing, I was saying to myself, and I said to some folks earlier, you know, I could just keep singing for the whole hour. Um, when we, as the people of God, come into this place and assemble and raise our voices in praise to God, something happens. The dynamic of the room shifts, and the spirit moves among us, that spirit that you brought into this place. He wasn't sitting here waiting for you to arrive he came with you this morning into this place, and he's manifest in our presence because we've assembled with him and now in his name. That's what makes this the house of the Lord, and it's what makes this assembly holy. And so we have the privilege of being together uh, here to sing his praises. And I was thinking about how a rightly timed song can be a powerful medium in life. When we were singing those words, all my life you have been faithful. You cannot sing that song without some set of circumstances coming to mind. Wouldn't you agree? Where you've seen the faithfulness of God in your own life. And God's up there in heaven watching this tape that you're rewinding in your mind, I'm convinced. Where you're rehearsing his goodness in those circumstances, which are different for you than they are for me. But he's aware of each set of circumstances and each one of our lives. Aren't you comforted by that? A rightly timed song can be a powerful medium in life. Last fall, the first week of November, my sister's life changed in a dramatic way. She happens to live in Florida. I got a text from her husband, my brother-in-law, that says, your sister's been transported. Uh, she's an assistant principal at a public school. It was an incredibly stressful day. She's been transported to the hospital. She's in the ER with chest pains. She's only 44 years old, and she had a very serious heart attack. Her life has changed as a result. She's still not back at work. And um, so over these intervening months, I've been able to pray with, talk with her. And one of the ways that I've tried to encourage her is by texting her a link to a song. They're all Christian songs. They talk about the character of God, the goodness of God, and how I've reminded her that even in these unexpected circumstances, the goodness of God still is present, and his nature is unchanging. And the promise of God is that 
everything, while not good in life, if we allow it to be redeemed for his glory, can work out for our good, the good of others, and then ultimately the glory of his name, which is the purpose of life. And so this last week, uh, Chris and I were in different places, and she group texted us both um, a song. You know, it's that popular uh, Christian chorus that we have sung for years, Oceans where God has decided that he will take you out into places where he'll uphold you, places you couldn't have expected to find yourself, but he's present with you in those circumstances nonetheless. And in the text, she said this, I name Jesus as my Lord. And I thought to myself, you know, she hasn't sat under any sermons that I've preached recently. All I've done is just pray and talk when the occasion afforded afforded itself and then sent her songs. And I think it's probably been the songs as much as anything that have been about God's goodness and people singing his praise that have affected her thinking and her perspective on her circumstances, which were very unexpected. The Bible is replete with songs or poems that have been turned into songs that people have been singing for ages, songs that tell the character of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and perhaps the most familiar of all these biblical songs, if you will, is the 23rd Psalm. I don't know if you think about it that way, but it's a song. That's really what it is. And it's a song that talks about the goodness of God. Let me read these familiar words. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I love this last line, don't you? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? I mean, it's a wonderful song. It was uh, about 30 years ago, as a young pastor in my mid-twenties, that someone gave me a cassette tape. Remember those? Um, And they said, hey, this is a sermon that I think you should probably listen to. It was by a pastor named Donald Cole. And the, the sermon was around the 23rd Psalm. That sermon, that message, if you will, would forever change the way I view Scripture. And this psalm in particular. It was the first time that I'd listened to a talk that was given to a congregation and felt as though my life was woven into the narrative that I was hearing. I don't remember everything about the sermon. I just remember how I was drawn into it and thought to myself, you know, as I preach, I give people all the details of discovery that I have found in this week leading up to this sermon when I've read commentaries and studied original language. And I thought they would be equally as interested in all of that that a student of Scripture might be interested in, only to discover they weren't nearly as thrilled with all the things that I was saying as I was. I had great enthusiasm. 
What it seemed modern people wanted to know is the same thing that ancient people wanted to know. Tell me how a sovereign God comes to me in the midst of my circumstances and how a relationship with him makes all the difference in the world. Or tell me nothing at all. And isn't that really what we as modern people still want to know? How do we, living in a world that seems to be falling apart at a rapid rate, how does your relationship today with God make all the difference in the world? Well, David has found himself in a set of circumstances where, quite honestly, you could look at his life and say, it's not altogether unlike my own. How so? Primarily for this one reason. David, when he writes these words, I'm convinced, has been brought to an unexpected place in life. In fact, it's the kind of place where he would never have not only anticipated, um, he wouldn't have agreed to if someone had told him before, you're going to end up here and this is how things are going to go in life. He might have said, are there any other candidates for this assignment? Uh, I would prefer you choose him and not me. Most of us know David as the young shepherd boy. Um, the armies of God are being intimidated by a Philistine giant, and David has been summoned by his father and told, you run to the front lines of the battle, and you bring milk and bread and cheese to your brothers and the soldiers that are there, and then you make sure that they're refreshed uh, as they wait to try and defeat our enemies, and then you come back to me and give good report, and hopefully that report includes that your brothers are faring well. And on one occasion, David goes, as you know the story, and he hears the giant out there hurling all these insults at the people of God, and he sort of grows irate that somebody would stand and say the things that he says against the people of God. And he realizes that everybody sort of is shrinking back in fear, and he, he goes back to his father, he gives his report, and finally realizes, well, if nobody else will step forward, then I'll step forward. And I've killed a bear and a lion, and I can take out this giant. And so that's exactly what happens. With nothing more than a sling and a stone, he kills the giant. Most of us know David as the shepherd boy who becomes a warrior of sorts. What happens afterward is that God looks down on the situation, and he decides that among all the people who are candidates for kingship, he chooses David, primarily for these two reasons. One, he has a tender heart. And two, he has a courageous faith. I mean, that's what makes him a candidate for, you know, to become king. He has a tender heart for God and for people, and he has a courageous faith. And he's decided that he will trust the Lord. And so he's anointed to become the king of God's people. I mean, that's really, in the end, the ultimate qualification for spiritual leadership. Do you have a tender heart? Do you care about and for people? Do you have a tender heart toward God? And when he summons you to an assignment that's beyond you, can you do so with great faith? And so any one of us would say, well, he's the man for the job. He's the man, man of the hour, if you will. What happens over time is that David's humanity also uh, becomes on full display. That's why I'm always relieved that, that the story of my life is not recorded on the pages of Holy Scripture. Because if you're in the Bible, you get the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want you to see the good. That's it. Right? 
But with David, uh, you see that he's an adulterer. Um, and not only is he an adulterer, because one night as he looks out upon the city that he governs and sees this beautiful woman has her brought to his bedside and commits the sin of adultery, he realizes that he doesn't want to lose her. He wants to keep her as his own. And a king can have virtually anything that his heart desires. And so realizing she's married, he conspires to have her husband put near the front lines of battle and then gives order to other soldiers that they should pull back when the fighting is most fierce and it will probably mean his demise, and that's exactly what happens. And then David has this woman, Bathsheba, brought into the palace to be one of his wives. Well, that sin of sexual dysfunction, of violence, and even murder comes home to roost in David's family line. David has a number of sons. On one occasion, one of these sons looks at their sister, a beautiful woman, and decides that he will conspire to have her tricked and brought near to his bedside, and he rapes his own sister. And when he realizes what he's done is an evil thing in the eyes of God and others, he puts her out away from him, and she's left to be a desolate woman to live in shame. Another one of David's sons and so a brother to the man who's perpetrated this sexual sin takes Tamar into his home and says, well, I don't want you to live your whole life in shame, so stay here with me. And in time, as he sees how this has affected her life, his heart grows angry toward his own brother for the evil he's perpetrated on their sister, and he conspires in time how he might kill his brother, and that's exactly what he does. When he realizes that the thing that he's done is evil too and not right and his father won't be happy, he understands that he's got to flee the capital city. And so he runs away from Jerusalem and he lives out there sort of in exile, if you will, until one day one of David's counselors comes to him and says to the king, listen, that's your son. You should have him brought back to the city. I mean, blood after all is thicker than water. And so David takes that advice and he has his son brought back, but he's still so angry with his own son that he says he can live in the city, but I don't even want to see him. I want no association with him whatsoever. So don't bring him into the palace. And can you imagine that you're within sight of your father and of the palace and you're in the royal family line, but you have none of the privileges of royalty and your own father wants nothing to do with you whatsoever. And so over time, his heart grows bitter, not only toward his brother, whose life he's taken, but now toward his father. And it grows so angry, if you will, that he decides to infiltrate David's courts and among the soldiers, and he begins to build an allegiance among those people who will be loyal to him over loyalty to his own father, the king. And when this resistance grows large enough, David discovers that there's a coup afoot. And it's led by his own son who has decided that these men will now pursue David, the king, his father, and they will kill him. And Absalom will establish himself upon the throne and he will rule the people of God. And it grows so great over time that David is the one who now has to flee Jerusalem. 
It's not his son who's on the run living in exile. David takes those who are loyal to him and he escapes Jerusalem and he goes out into the open fields and into the forests. And interestingly, as he escapes the city, there are people who look upon him because David is a warrior king. There's been a lot of bloodshed under his rule and understandably so in some respects. There are people who come out of their houses and they line the roadway and they hurl dirt and stone at the king and insults and they say, listen, you've shed a lot of blood and now all the blood that, that you've shed is going to come home to roost on you. It'll mean your own life, your own head. And some of the people that are traveling with David who are loyal to him say to him, listen, king, nobody should talk to you like this ever. Let us slay this guy right now and he says no don't do it because if what he said is true if it's a prophecy of the spirit if it's really from god then it'll come to pass but if it's not it won't well david is now out in this place and as he's getting close to the field another person comes out of his house he's a wealthy man and he brings a stockpile of food literally and he gives it to the king's entourage and david's perplexed by this most people see him escaping in shame but this one wealthy man says, no, here's a whole bunch of food for you. And he gives him a skin of fresh wine. And David inquires as to why he would do such a thing. And he says this, when you're out there and you're famished, take all of this in order to refresh yourself. Because you need to eat after all. Even if you're on the run, you need to eat. So David escapes out into this place and the rebellion grows and people are aligning themselves with Absalom. And interestingly, one of the people who aligns himself with the king's son is one of David's most trusted confidants and advisors by the name of Ahithophel. Don't ever name your kid Ahithophel, right? I mean, it's just hard to spell. It's hard to say. But he's been really a friend to David, and he's a guy that would inquire of the Lord, really, genuinely, on the king's behalf, and he would come back and give him counsel, usually good, godly counsel. But David is informed that this man, who was a trusted confidant, has now aligned himself with his son. And Ahithophel goes to Absalom and actually volunteers and says this, listen, when the time comes, I volunteer to go pursue your father. And the sooner the better, because if we can take him out, everybody will lose heart and they will pledge their allegiance to you as the new king. So it's important that we kill your dad as quickly as possible. It seems like good advice. It's not. Well, Absalom, you know, does what somebody who's leading a coup would do. He gets all of his soldiers and forces together and he heads out into the place where he knows his dad and those loyal to him have escaped to. And David sees them coming on the horizon and he realizes a great battle awaits these two groups. Those who are loyal to the king and those who are a part of the resistance. And the battle will no doubt rage. David has decided that if the words that the man who's hurled the insults and the dirt at him are true, then so be it. And he says to his forces, then I will lead you into battle against my son and all those who stand with him. They plead with David 
They say, no, please, king, do not lead us into battle. You stay here in the recesses of safety. And they ask, what would it be if 10,000 of us fall on the field of battle? But if you fall, we have lost. And David, once again, realizes not only the gravity of the situation, but the importance of his presence and his leadership. And so he relents, and he stays in the recesses of safety. And I'm convinced there... There's this great feast that has been set before him. Maybe he's eaten with his closest soldiers and generals the night before, and the food remains, the wine and the cheese and the bread. And all the men descend into the valley into battle, and it is a fierce fight. The Bible tells us that on that day, 20,000 people fall in this battle. And it's a great thick forest where the fight also takes place. They not only fall by the sword and the spear in the open fields, some of them are trapped in the forest and they fall there as well. David has only given, it seems, one executive order to those who go to fight against Absalom and his forces. He has said this, When you find my son, be merciful to him. Do not kill him. Bring him to me. And David is not summoning his son to his side because I'm convinced he intends to kill him. Later, you will hear David cry out before the Lord, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Why would such things happen? Well, the battle rages, and not only did 20,000 men fall that day, but when Absalom realizes that the Lord is with David's forces and not his own, he begins to flee into the forest and riding, he comes up against a tree limb and he's caught there by the neck. He's still alive, but it's a thick forest. And when some of David's forces come upon him and they recognize Absalom, they cannot help themselves and they run him through with the spear and ultimately he is killed. David is given report of how the battle has gone. Maybe he's able to see, but you can't see through the trees. And the report comes back to him, we have prevailed. We have won the fight. You are still the king of Israel. You will return to Jerusalem and you will rule once again. But David is heartbroken. He cannot rejoice. On top of that, he gets this word that Ahithophel, his friend, realizes that he has aligned himself wrongly with David's son and he should have remained loyal to the king. And so he returns to his home area and literally he takes his own life. David has prevailed, but the cost has been great. It's an incredible, incredible fight. He goes back into the city. He's so demoralized, if you will, that he seems unable to gather himself until finally one of his advisors comes to him and says, listen, if you don't bring yourself together, all of these men who have fought to save your life and your backside, they will turn on you sooner or later because no one can serve under a demoralized leader forever. And David realizes that they're right 
And he summons himself back to be the king that he is. And I'm convinced, while I cannot say for sure, it is somewhere in the midst of or on the heels of all these circumstances that David pens the words of the 23rd Psalm. Maybe it's as he sits back there in the recesses of safety, eating some of the leftovers from the feast that they enjoyed the night before. Or maybe it's after he had returned to the palace, and on this particular night, as he's sort of strolling along the promenade, and he's looking out from the balcony at all that he rules, he's not coveting another man's wife. Or maybe it's in the midst of some other set of circumstances that he muses and he says these words to himself and maybe aloud, Oh God, you, Lord, are my shepherd and here I am wanting once again for nothing. You laid me down out there in those open green pastures beside those still waters. And here I stand, my soul restored once again. Now, Lord, please, once again, lead me in paths of righteousness for your own name's sake. And if I should ever again, and there's another growing resistance in the city, if I should ever again walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will know that you are all around me and I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they continued to comfort me. I ate a feast in the very presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with holy oil. My cup runs over. you filled me with blessing. Such goodness and mercy, unworthy as I am, still follows me all the days of my life. And amazingly, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He writes those words. And why are we still singing that song today? Because those words resonate with ancient people and modern people because they are born in the crucible of life. And while the circumstances are different from David than they are for me or they may be for you, every single one of us has been brought to an unexpected place in life and wondered why God and what do you intend to accomplish now as a result of bringing me here? The 23rd Psalm, of course, is preceded by the 22nd Psalm. It's probably the moment of David's greatest transparency in all the things he writes in Holy Scripture. I mean, he says they are the things that it would seem you don't say out loud to God. But let me tell you literally what he says. You can read it for yourself later. He's registering his complaints to God. It's got a lot of lament, if you will. And this is what he says. You don't even answer my prayers. Have you ever thought that to God? You ever been quite that transparent? I pray and it uh, seems to me you don't answer. And then he says this. You seem far from me. I'm trying to get close to you and I can't. You're able to do anything. I mean, you're the sovereign of the universe and yet you do nothing. I've become a laughingstock to all these people who know I've pledged myself to you. I've waited on you and you didn't show up. I'm betrayed and I'm surrounded by trouble. My strength is waning. My health is failing. My clothes are wearing out. And not to mention, I'm hungry. I mean, that's what David says. What's interesting is in a moment, in an instant, 
he changes his tune. Psychologists would look at the 22nd Psalm and say, he may have been king, but he was also schizophrenic. But I think there's a better explanation. I think there's a better explanation. Hear me. David sees his difficulty and God's goodness not in juxtaposition, but rather in tandem. And might I suggest to you that unless and until you have this perspective of God, you will always have an uninformed perspective of God. You will have an immature view of God. And so he looks at God and he says, how do I reconcile all of my own dysfunction, all of the difficulties I would never have asked for, all of your goodness and your mercy, and still realize that you are the sovereign of all creation and you care about me. It was A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, who once put it this way. Never forget, God has two hands. With one, he presses you down, and the other, he presses you up. You see, God works you from both sides before you die, doesn't he? He works you from the left with all of his mercy and his intuition and all of his grace and tenderness. But he also works you from the right. He comes and he reminds you of what's true and the requirement for you and I to repent and to walk in righteousness. That's how God works humanity. And human beings who only want God to tip in one direction or another really don't understand the God of the Bible. I mean, the truth of the matter is you're either left or right-handed. You're a little more merciful by nature or a little more truth-telling by nature. And you're never holding these two in perfect balance. Isn't that true? It's why my wife would remind me with our kids growing up, listen, Tom, you're right-handed. You're very concerned about truth and helping people to know the truth because the truth will help them. And so when you discipline our children, don't forget to be tender and merciful and patient and kind. And she will tell you, there were occasions where I would say to her, but don't show too much leeway either because we don't want them to go too far down that road. Right? Human beings do not hold these things in perfect balance. There's only one who ever has or ever will. And that's God himself. And so when he works you from this side, rejoice and receive it. And when he works you from this side, recognize it as good nonetheless. Because he allows you to stumble, but he picks you up. He allows you to fall prey to your enemies, but he sends an army to rescue you. He consoles you, but he corrects you. That's what God does. So what does all of this have to do with you or with me? Um, it's just a reminder that you really do not want God to tip in one direction alone throughout your life. Let me close with this story, true story, written by Ron Lee Davis in a book called A Forgiving God in an Unforgiving World. Doesn't that sound great to you? A Forgiving God in an Unforgiving World. Davis tells this story, true story, 
of a priest who went to seminary and then moved to the Philippines to lead a parish of people. And uh, the priest was known as a man of God, and he had a highly effective ministry. He was very influential in the lives of the people that were a part of that congregation that he would pastor. But he had a secret. He committed a sin while he was a student in seminary that he had long ago repented of, but he had never felt as though God had actually forgiven him of. And he never felt peace or relief as a result of his confession. There was a lady who was a part of his parish who was also known as a woman of God, and the priest believed her to be so, but she would often say to the priest that Christ appeared to her in her prayers in a vision sort of way, and he would speak to her. The priest appreciated her stories, but always remained skeptical. And on one particular occasion, he uh, intended to test her to see if it was really true. And he said this, does Christ still appear to you in your dreams and a vision and speak to you? And she said, indeed, he does. And he said, so could I ask you to inquire something of him the next time he does so? And she said, okay, I will ask him. He said, the next time that you speak with Christ, would you ask him this question? What sin was it that your priest committed while a student in seminary, this sin that had troubled him his whole life through. She agreed. A few weeks went by and the priest and the lady came together again and he asked her, so did Christ appear to you in a vision? And she said, yes, he did. And did you ask him, what sin was it that your priest had committed while a student in seminary? She said, I did, I inquired of him. Well, tell me then, what did he say? She said, he said, I don't remember. <laughs> Listen, I can't vouch for that lady and her dreams, but I can vouch for God. Not only does he have the ability to hold in perfect tension the left and the right hand your whole life through, but he has another ability that you'll never have as long as you have your faculties to forget the greatest offenses that anyone has ever perpetrated upon you or the greatest sins you've ever committed. But he has this ability, God does, not only to forgive all of your sins, but to forget them as well. Listen, friend, I don't know what burden you carry here today, but if it's the burden of forgiveness, you take it, you give it to Christ, he throws it into the sea of his forgetfulness, and he's put up a sign, and it says to everybody who walks by, no fishing here. And because he does that, and no one else can, we follow him our whole life through. Amen? Father, thank you for the encouragement of Holy Scripture that reminds us once again the faithfulness of God. We bless you and thank you for blessing us. And today, as we come to this moment of seeing a degree honored, conferred upon our friend, brother, pastor, and colleague, we rejoice once again that God is pleased when he sees honor given among the people of God. 
We live in a society that has forgotten how to honor one another. May it be true of us in our families, on our streets, in our workplaces, and by all means in the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you once again for such mercy. In Christ's name, amen. It is my privilege to invite the president of Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary, Roger Matthews, and the dean of Alliance Theological, Ron Walborn, to come forward at this time. Mr. President, it is my pleasure and my privilege to introduce you to Reverend Scott G. Slocum. Who is he? Oh, come up here. I thought you'd been raptured or something. <laughs> Okay, more in a minute. Reverend Scott E. Slocum has been a minister and speaker since 1979. Scott Slocum has spent the last 35 years serving as senior pastor at Essex Alliance Church in Essex Junction, Vermont. During this time, the church has become one of the fastest growing congregations in New England and the largest church of any denomination in the state of Vermont. Passionate about reaching lost people, especially those who are anti-church and anti-Christian, Scott's emphasis is on demonstrating how the church and Christianity are relevant for life today. Scott is a graduate from Crown College in Minnesota with a Bachelor of Science degree in theology. He was ordained in the West, Coast, the West Central District in 1982 and has served the Alliance for 40 years. He served on the CNMA board, National Board of Directors for 13 years and for the last 27 years has served on the New England District Executive Committee. He currently serves as chairman of the board at Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary and has previously served on the board there for 14 years. He has helped navigate Nyack through one of the biggest transitions in the history of the college with his skill of discernment and leadership. Scott has been married to his wife Diane for 39 years and they have three children and six grandchildren. He has led biblical study trips to Israel, Germany, and Greece for the past 20 plus years for people and churches throughout the region. He is a sought after communicator at conferences and churches as he seeks to help churches fulfill the mission of loving and serving their community. None of us serve alone even God is triune in his nature. And so while we honor Scott, I'd like for Diane to come up as well, please, and stand beside uh, Reverend Slocum. And I'd also like Tom, who has been the district superintendent for many years and a close friend to also come aside and um, help in this particular Honor, and I've said it during the first service that uh, you do Nyack an honor by accepting this 
honorary degree from us. Thank you, Scott, for the years of service to us and shepherding this great institution through some challenging times. And thank you for your faithfulness to God's calling, not only here at Essex, but also at NAC. And so with that, let me read you the citation. By virtue of the authority granted by the Board of Trustees, upon the recommendation of the faculty of Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary, and by virtue of the authority granted by the Board of Regents of the University of the State of New York, I have the honor to, confess, to confer upon you the Doctor of Divinity, Honoris Causa, and to cause you to be invested with the hood appropriate to that degree. May the Lord bless you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the very high honor and privilege to present to you your very own and our very own, the Reverend Dr. Scott Slocum. Just, just stop now. <clears throat> I had a couple things I need to say. One, I didn't know any of this until a week ago that this was taking place. Uh, I was told by Steve Schoenberg, uh, our head elder, he came to me and just said, you need to know that we're going to honor your doctorate on Sunday and you're not preaching, uh, which is why my whole series is now messed up. Uh, <laughs> So uh, we're going to continue the series, just be a little bit different timing. So I didn't know, I didn't know the Flanders were going to be here. I didn't know the president was going to be here. Uh, I didn't know Dr. Walborn was going to be here. Uh, so this was uh, all a surprise of last week. So first thing, so formally, but very much from the heart, Mr. President, to our dean, to two of our trustees who are here, uh, it is an honor. very sincerely. I love Nyack College. Uh, I always wanted to be an alum of Nyack. Now I am. And so thank you for that. And it really is an honor. And I do thank you. I didn't uh, know this was coming when I was told. Uh, it was done in secret when the uh, trustees put my name forward. And uh, it did surprise me. Uh, and took me off guard, and I mean this as, as uh, sincerely as I can uh, because I didn't feel worthy of it. People that receive doctorates usually have given huge sums of money, have done some incredible things around the world, uh, 
and uh, I have just sought to seek it to uh, seek out to serve God as He's called me to do so. Uh, and uh, so when I was offered it, it was very, very humbling. And yet on this other side of it, there was great joy, for I always wanted to pursue my doctorate and graduate work. Two different times in my uh, history of pastoring, I actually applied to schools and was accepted and never pursued them because the church started to grow and the body needed time and energy that I didn't have to give to studies, so I never pursued it. But I always thought it'd be kind of nice if I could ever get to that place. And part of it is I'm not real scholarly. Um, I don't live in that world of academia. And so to be given a doctorate was huge. It was really quite a dream come true. But let me tell you this closing part of the story and then a final word. When I did find out I was going to receive a doctorate, I was going to receive it at commencement. You know, of course, a couple thousand people in an auditorium and students walking across the stage. And I would be one of those that would be honored that day and uh, be asked to speak. And uh, this, the ceremony you're seeing here would take place at commencement. And at the same time, I had learned that the commencement that I was going to receive my doctorate, my hooding, was the same commencement that 30 Vietnamese students from our NIAC program in Vietnam were coming to the United States and would be present to, be, to walk that stage themselves and receive that degree. Let me tell you why that's important. I've been, I've been in the Christian Missionary Alliance my whole life, our denomination. When I was a little boy, there was a thing taking place called the Vietnam War. We had missionaries in Vietnam. And when I was a little boy, some of our missionaries were martyred, Alliance missionaries were martyred, and some of them taken captive. And when I was just a little boy, eight, nine, ten years old, every night we prayed for our captured missionaries. Um, we then since found out those missionaries gave up their lives as well, martyred. In 1975, Saigon fell. Some of you won't remember that at all. Of course, some of you would remember very vividly. Uh, I, that was in high school. In 1975, Saigon fell. Remember the pictures vividly of those helicopters coming out. And what you perhaps would not know is some of the people on those helicopters, those final flights out, were our Alliance missionaries who had stayed to the bitter end to help get people out of the country. Some of our missionaries were literally on the last helicopter that left Saigon before it fell. When Vietnam fell, we had approximately, I won't get this number right, 100,000 Christian, uh, Christians Vietnamese Christians in the country, in our Alliance churches, about 100,000. It fell to the North Vietnamese. We had no idea what was taking place, of course, after that, and everything went silent. Years later, when things finally changed, uh, we had a team that was allowed to go back into Vietnam and to see whatever happened to the church that we left. When our team went back, uh, Dr. Walborn was one of the team that went, when they went back, they found that in Vietnam, there was over a million and a half believers. It makes me feel like maybe we need persecution in the United States for the body of Christ to find out who it really is and for the gospel to grow. A million and a half believers. And then from that point, as the Vietnamese government released its 
rules and regulations, and NIAC was invited back to begin a program within the country of Bible school and seminary and training. These students that would be coming were the first ones after all of those years, they've been saving money for years, all of their families were going to come to be at that commencement. I didn't want to have this happen at that, ser at that service. I didn't want my hooding to happen at that service. And I mean this so sincerely from the heart because in comparison, this means nothing compared to these Vietnamese students who have endured persecution and have seen the gospel grow. And so I was going to go to the president and say, I'd like to not have that happen at commencement. And then COVID came, took care of that. And in retrospect, the better place for this to happen for me would be here uh, with this, my church family. And so thank you for being a part of it. Final part of the story, then a final word from me. I learned last night that this commencement, commencement it's going to happen this beginning of May, May 8th, I believe it's May 8th. I'll be there at that commencement. Those students that weren't able to come are coming back to receive their diploma at Nyack College. And on top of that, the president of the church of North Korea, of North Vietnam, Vietnam and the president of the church in South Vietnam are both coming. And this is going to be a historic moment where the two, the two north and south sides of it, the church, comes together for one church in Vietnam, a historic day. And I could not be happier. Thank you for sharing that with me, Ron. That's going to take place coming up. What a historic day in the body of Christ. My final statement, and I could not be up here without saying this, and this is recognition to my wife. I serve in multiple committees, uh, in multiple boards, NIAC being one, board of directors, our district, as Tom said, other appointed committees. I've only been able to do that because of your support and your releasing me. One of the things that we see in ministry today with so many uh, coming out of the seminaries, coming out of college with ministry, and that is they don't fully get that ministry is a calling to both people. It's a couple's calling, not an individual calling. Diane, you have always known we were called together. And you have enabled me to serve and to serve well. And I am grateful and indebted to you. And so I say to you, thank you. Now. I will uh, dismiss us. Am I? There's nothing else, right? <laughs> I know nothing about today. It's been bothering me. I've had a feeling of, of impending doom all week because I'm completely out of control. Uh, I will um, dismiss us. If you want pictures, get them now because you'll you'll not see me like this uh, on this stage. Other stage, other places, I will, but not uh, not here. And uh, my sincere gratitude to each of you. Uh, stand, if you would, please. Father, I give you thanks for allowing me to be a part of your kingdom and your kingdom work.
As I have shared many times in the years of ministry, it is always a wonder to me that you've chosen me and allowed me to be used. And on top of that, to be used in ways I never dreamed possible or imagined. You allow every one of us to be a part of something that's so much bigger, so much larger than we could ever be a part of on our own or something that we could ever imagine. That's your kingdom. And not only do you allow us, but your plan for the church has always been about us being a part of the very, the very foundation of building your church. And so I give you thanks for allowing me to, be my, to share my part. And this morning, as this church has gathered to honor me, I would say before you, Father, I thank you for this church body. For they too have allowed me to serve, not just here, but when I travel, when I go to Nyack, when I go to Colorado Springs or board meetings, wherever it might be, this church and its leadership has given me their voice of support and encouragement. And I thank you for that. I thank you for each one of them that allow me to use my gifts, to use my abilities to the fullest, and to do so with grace and with excitement. I look forward to seeing what you're going to do at NIAC. I look forward to seeing what you're going to do here because you are a mighty God and we trust you. And we will follow you. And we will see you work. And then we'll look at one another and say, ah, and we got to be a part of it all. I thank you for that incredible gift to us. As we leave this place, dismiss us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. We have some cake up in the video cafe. Love to have you come.